there's no way the best bed can be sucked into a box. I agree. I agree completely. I've, I've laid on every single one. Avocado. Fucking Lisa. <laughs> fucking Green Dragon. Billabong. <laughs> Stussy. <laughs> welcome to cancer for breakfast with amy and steph i'm amy and i'm steph though we try to make cancer for breakfast safe and comfortable for everyone it may not be suitable for all audiences and is intended for informational and educational purposes only It is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. We're not doctors. We didn't even go to podcasting school. (laughs) Steph, can you tell me what 64 is 20% 20 of? What? Who do you think you're talking to? Okay, I'm just going to say it and then you'll understand why in a second. Is that okay? It is okay. Is there ma- is there more math involved? Because I didn't sign up for that. <laughs> okay, so I was reminded from my stupid uh, like iPhone photo memories or something that my first haircut post being a bald ass cancer bitch was mm-hmm. a year ago yesterday. Ooh. And I have bad memories of this haircut and I've never talked about it on the podcast for a few reasons. First of all, to complain about a haircut to people who are probably like freaking out about having to go bald and have no hair and da 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 is dick. Mm -hmm. But I also went through that so I'm allowed to or something. Essentially, you know, your first haircut is like a big deal after you have been bald and you are waiting for your hair to like ever grow back and you know, you just does come back fast but but it was kind of like a milestone for me and I actually went back to the hair salon that I had gone to to get my hair cut before chemo Mm -hmm. and like the best woman cut my hair and she moved to Miami if you're in Miami you should see her she's the hair goddess of Miami on Instagram anyway freaking I went and this chick who is very nice but she fucked my brand new little hair spuds up so much and charged me whatever 64 is 20 percent of which is so much money i can't remember and i didn't want to lie that's why i was asking you whatever 64 oh is 20 percent of it was like 420 dollars or some shit you paid portland prices for that haircut that's not portland price that is like expensive new york price it she did do a little bit of color but my hair was like three inches long it was so short and the reason this was a problem for me is and we will get to the caregiver (laughs) part of this episode yeah we will is because my hair was finally just long enough that i could kind of clean it up a little bit and make it not because when your hair grows out from chemo it is spastic which is kind of fun a little bit, but it was like just kind of like puffy and big and weird. And I just wanted to like, I told her just 
shape it a little bit, give it a little cut and like a little bit of color, but I don't really want to. I literally said I don't really want to invest very much in it because it's three inches long and I don't care. And she was like, I hear you and I'm charging you $500. (laughs) She charged me so much money and then came up with the tip suggest 20%. It was like $64. And I was like, I'm not fucking tipping you $64. I'm going to round it up to 500. What is going on in this world? Anyway, maybe it was $380. I don't remember. It's a lot. It's a lot for even a good haircut. It, w- it was not good. But then you know what happened? It turned good. About two weeks later, it turned good. And guess what I haven't done in an entire year? Gotten a haircut. Or color. Yeah. I haven't done shit to it. So who got the last laugh? And now your hair is long and cute. Yeah. She did a great job. Yeah. She set you up for success. She did. I didn't know it at the time. I was really fucking pissed. Anyway, I don't know why I needed to share that with our listeners, but it's a journey. <laughs> um, all right. We are going to talk about caregivers. But first, since I talked about something dumb about my physical appearance, I would like you to talk about something cool about your physical appearance. Oh, right. So today I'm getting... Um, my cancer tattoo. I am really excited about it. Um, is it going to be $420? <laughs> it might be. I mm-hmm. don't know how much it's going to be. Um, I have saved up for it. I'm really excited. My tattoo artist is a friend. Um, I hope she won't mind me sharing this, but her mother died of breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And she does really beautiful botanical tattoos. She does oh. other tattoos too, but she's done a bunch of mine. and um, I wanted a kind of non-traditional cancer tattoo. I wanted botanicals. And um, so I chose Western U, which mm-hmm. Taxol is derived from. Yes. And Periwinkle flower, which um, there's a whole classification of cancer drugs that are made from Vinca mm. alkaloids from the Periwinkle plant. I didn't know that. That is so cool. Yeah. And the old, the old favorite opium poppies that will send me off to my eternal resting place someday. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Just kidding. But I do. I love an opium poppy. I mean, I'm not, I'm kidding, not kidding, but. Uh, <laughs> oh, I love you and hate you at the same time. I mean, what's going on? <laughs> um, but I'm really excited about it. I, I mm. love plants and flowers and this feels more like a celebration than you know a sad thing even though you know most people that have cancer tattoos I think get them when they're like done with treatment or whatever but I don't know if that's true I don't have that to look forward to so I'm just fucking Mm -hmm. doing it I feel like people get them during milestones and that's not always a end of treatment you know yeah I guess that's true is there a milestone this is attached to, or is it just something you've been thinking about? No, I ha- I saved up enough money, and my friend's books opened, so <laughs> that's the milestone. Um, but I'm excited. I'm excited to see her and chat with her and get a little bit of art on my bod. Well, I I hope you like it in a year as much as I like my hair a year later. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> well, it's a caregivers episode. Welcome, caregivers. Yeah, hi. Sorry we made you sit through all of that stuff, but <laughs> welcome to our podcast, Cancer for Breakfast. We have letters from many a folk, many a caregiver folk. Yeah. 
And um, we don't typically devote a ton of time to caregivers because, you know, we're cancer people. But Mm -hmm. you guys are in our community, too. We know that you are because a lot of you tried to join our cancer person Facebook group and denied <laughs> we denied you because it's so important for everybody to have a safe space to talk yeah. about things honestly so we made a Facebook group for caregivers it's cancer for breakfast club caregivers if you want to look for it on the old Facebook mm-hmm. but we got some cool letters from some caregivers that we're going to read here in a minute yeah I will do one quick content note before we start reading the letters, which is one letter does mention the passing of a partner, which happened in like the early 2000s. And the letter writer, it's the last letter we read. So you can just fast forward through that one if you would like to. Yeah, it's it's Betsy's letter. It's Betsy's. And then also before we get in to these letters, could we do an update on what is going on with this? damn urso drug yes so apologies to the caregivers who are tuning in no they want to hear this because this is like this should matter to everybody it really should it's it's fascinating to me even apart from it being about breast cancer which obviously is my personal deal Mm -hmm. um listeners longtime listeners may remember that we talked about this drug urso it's e-r-s-o Because we were just so thoroughly charmed by one of the researchers. And the drug itself is a huge deal. It's not just about the researcher, but that was one of the best parts of the episode. But right. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Please go on. No, you're fine. Tell tell about him. So he was very sweet. We found him on Twitter and on Instagram. Because we are absolute psycho stalkers, by the way. Right. It's true. That is a weird thing to do, to like look up the researcher. I mean, it is, but his name was there. His picture was everywhere. And I personally really love this about Twitter is that you can find researchers and ask them for access to papers that you would ordinarily have to pay for. And obviously I love a deal. I love a bargain. (laughs) (laughs) So I found that guy and I wanted to see his research. And um, so he said that he had some imposter syndrome because he Uh, has been apparently a hobbyist bodybuilder. (laughs) It was it was all very cute. So anyway, here's an update on the drug that he worked on. (laughs) We're really leading you on a really wild circle for this story. That's right. But I will say before we move on from the weightlifter, you should listen to the episode. It was the I actually know which one it was because it was the freshman orientation episode oh yeah 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 because i just had to text it to someone who just got diagnosed because this keeps fucking happening to people Uh, but um anyway the point of my story is yes i was like screenshotting his instagram to stuff we were making fun of him like heartless (laughs) little bitches because yes it was so funny because he was the picture was like him like muscly with like a pair of shorts on or something and no shirt and just so muscly being like this is very vulnerable of me to share. Yeah. I don't normally post stuff like this. And I've had a bit of imposter syndrome. Like, we're just like, you have an imposter syndrome. You're curing cancer. You're curing cancer. I know. Amy, you thought he was being genuine. I thought it was a disingenuous thirst trap. You thought it was a thirst trap for sure. And I was like, he's lovely. Look at, you know, whatever. Either way, we appreciate his contributions to science. And what <laughs> a fucking contribution it was. 
<laughs> well, that's what we're going to talk about. Is it a great contribution? It, that remains to be seen. Because what does Ur- this drug do, though? So, okay. So, Urso, I'm, I'm going to give a little rundown um, in case anybody doesn't want to rewind to that previous episode. Briefly, Urso, it's E-R-S-O. Um, the E-R is because it treats estrogen receptor positive breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And SO is because it's being developed by oh, a company called Systems Oncology. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, the info that I, I am using came from the Illinois News Bureau and the journal Science Translational Medicine. Also, you know, this guy's paper that I kindly was granted access to. So um, scientists at the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana, which is where Darjan or Jan Darjan, I don't know how to say his name, but our bodybuilder, where he is a researcher, developed this drug called Urso. It killed 95 to 100% of cancer cells in mouse models, and it worked in a matter of days. Please say the word metastatic breast cancer cells in these mice. Like it had spread throughout the body, which we all right. know is not curable currently yeah right so it was a near complete response or a complete response in each mouse that they tested it on crazy so it works by stimulating a cellular stress response and typically that stress response protects cancer cells but the way that they have finagled things Mm -hmm. it doesn't protect the cancer cells it was well tolerated in mice rats and dogs which is great yeah typically the next step from that is primates mm-hmm. before they move on to human trials. We do not know if there was primate testing. Mm-hmm. Lots of people are assuming that there was. Bayer purchased the development rights and took over clinical trials in July of 2020, mm-hmm. shortly after this paper was published. In September of 2020, Bayer and Systems Oncology made an exclusive global licensing agreement. So the way that this works is... Systems Oncology is the scientific arm that develops the science, Mm -hmm. and they work in conjunction with the University of Illinois researchers. And then Bayer is responsible for funding and marketing, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And they already, they invested a grip of money in this. They They, sure did. Do you know how much they bought it for? I do. So the deal was for $345 million plus royalties. And they gave $25 million up front to Systems Oncology. So, obviously, they were quite confident. Mm-hmm. And then, unfortunately, in December of 2021, Bayer announced that they were discontinuing development, quote, for scientific reasons. So, um, the bummer about this is, obviously, there was a lot of hope and a lot of optimism around the drug development because... It had been purchased for so much. The mice and rat and dog mm-hmm. responses were so promising. Um, and there is a Facebook group called Urso Activism for Breast Cancer. Mm-hmm. They have been really awesome in advocating for the release of information. Basically, yeah. People want to know what's going on, what stalled it out, what happens now that Bayer has said they're discontinuing the development of it. So the admins of the Facebook group have been pretty active in trying to get answers. They have gotten a response from Systems Oncology and the University of Illinois both, and they kind of have the same line. They're saying 
there were unexpected challenges with the science. The systems oncology people have said that they haven't given up on Urso. Mm -hmm. They're still hoping that it will reach clinical trials. But obviously there's something that happened, whether it's a toxicity thing um, with primate trials, Mm -hmm. which hopefully could then be adjusted. Right. But who knows? I think, though, the upshot of all of this is that we live in this really cool time where people can push for answers. They can push to see the research. Mm -hmm. They can get together crowdfunding. And we aren't just beholden to the companies that buy the development rights. We can say we want to know what's happening with this drug that could potentially save our lives. Yeah. And whether that's Urso that ends up, you know, being the cure for metastatic breast cancer, or if it's one of these mRNA mm-hmm. drugs that's being developed, there's a lot of really cool science happening around trying to cure cancer. Yeah. And a lot of people, you know, in the group are of the mind that drug companies want to keep people sick because it's good for business. Mm-hmm. I personally don't believe that that's the case. I think there's still a lot of money to be made in curing people's cancer. Oh, hell yeah. Those customers just keep on coming, they unfortunately. Sure do. Yeah. It's really messed up, but that's really true. And I, I absolutely agree with you on that. And um, I am in this group, too. There, I love how active people have been. One woman, like, brought cookies or something to the system's oncology. Yeah, people, the Like, to get in the door, right? To, like, ask right. them. Um, I do hope that it was a toxicity issue when they did primate trials and they're able to kind of adjust that. And that's what's happening. Yeah. I hope that the research on Urso is not stalled forever. Yeah. If it is, there's going to be something else. There's, yes. there's always going to be something else. Science is moving so quickly. So quickly. And, um, you know, it's wild to think that you know, when I was a kid, AIDS was still killing people and mm-hmm. it's basically been cured. Hepatitis C. I have friends who were infected with hepatitis C and who now are completely clear of the disease. I have to hope that lots of cancers will be the next yeah. to be cured forever. And um, I think that, you know, our bodybuilder should be proud of his part in that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just thank goodness for all these scientists who keep at it, even though they run into roadblocks. Absolutely. Hear, hear. <laughs> Huzzah. Huzzah <laughs> for the scientists. It's true. Um, okay. Well, great update. Terrible news. Great update. Let's read some fucking letters. Let's do it. Uh, should I start? Yeah. Do you want to read a letter? Sure. I will. Okay. I'll start. Yeah. Um. I'm going to read the first one is from Kayla, who is the partner of Steph, and they live in Seattle. She says that Steph is 32 with stage four metastatic breast cancer. She's currently no evidence of disease. All right, Steph. This is not me, by the way. But you're almost no evidence of disease. Different Steph. You're almost the same stuff. (laughs) (laughs) We're both queer. We both have metastatic Uh, breast cancer. But she is Steph with a PH. You're Steph with an F. Um, okay. That would be a kind of a cool song. She's stuck with the BH. You're stuck with the F. Okay. Sorry. Um, and she, uh, Kayla is 28 and they have a delightful five-year-old daughter. Okay. She says, let's talk about queer partnership while facing metastatic breast cancer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Let's talk about the jokes and the side glances as people say, oh, you guys must be such close sisters. Sisters? Nah, I'm their wife. Um, and she says there's a content note that she's about to mention some sexual activity. Um, during our chemo teach, they handed us paperwork on how to have safe P and V sex with someone on chemotherapy. Rather insulting, but I digress. I had to make the pharmacist very uncomfortable <laughs> when I even mentioned how to safely engage in same sex sexual activities and then elaborate when she was confused. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> to say she had no information would be an understatement. I feel a little sorry for the pharmacist, but here we go. Um, the <laughs> but I'm on your side, Kayla. Um, this isn't my side job. I'm not their friend. I'm not their cousin, their sister. I am their wife, their partner, the other mother to our child. I am in this 24-7. I don't go home at the end of the night. I spend my nights waking up to give meds and checking in to make sure that my wife is still breathing. I developed some pretty severe anxiety when her stage four diagnosis and following two surgeries and calling me anything less than spouse hurts. My wife's treatment in Seattle is an incredibly progressive city, yet still here I am reminding nurses, doctors, phlebotomists that I am in fact not their sister or their close friend. I am the spouse. It belittles me and my wife's relationship to be called anything else. The last place we should feel like we have to come out is while she's in a vulnerable mental space receiving treatment or scans. It's an old system that greatly needs updating. Yeah, yeah. When my wife was diagnosed with stage four and we were told that her bone metastases was breaking her arm and would require extensive surgery, her oncologist looked at me and said, Everything about your relationship is about to change. I hated it. I didn't want to change. But it was true and it did change. I learned to fight for my spouse. How to separate her as a patient and as a lover. How to care for each separate part of her. I learned to carry a notebook and which backpack was comfiest to haul all of our entertainment to scan days. That tension headache after your first full day in clinic will hit you hard. Some advice. Dance with your wife in the empty waiting room of the fourth floor after her infusion ran late. Bring cake in a tiny lunchbox so you can have a date in the car between appointments because you've used all of your babysitting hours on appointments and have none left for dates, let alone the energy. Be her advocate, her friend, but remember to be her spouse too. It's a hard line, caregivers walk, and we do it for little reward and sometimes at great cost to our mental and physical health. Hug your caregiver. They might need it. Thanks, ladies. Keep up the good work, Kayla. Thank you so much, Kayla. Yeah, thank you, Kayla. I think that that is, you know, rings so true that the last thing you need is having to continually come out mm -hmm. to just put yourself and your identity on the line like that. Absolutely. When you're already needing care and comfort. It's just not fair. It's not fair at all. We have a whole episode dedicated to the queer cancer experience, too, if anyone is interested in checking that out. Is it called the queer episode? Or no, we called it. I think it's called the Pride Parade. Oh, the Pride Parade. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're so clever. Okay. Um, will you read a letter or do you have more to say about Kayla? Um, you know, I do have a little bit more to say and just that. I obviously, not obviously, maybe people don't know this, but I get treatment in Seattle too. And 
it's true that it is a very progressive city. And mm-hmm. it just goes to show that when places like Seattle are still behind the times, we have so many friends and listeners who live in other places Oh yeah, where they can't even safely come out because they don't know that they'll still get high quality health care. And right. that is horrible. And yes, sure. Everyone I'm sure will say, just report them to, right. you know, HR or whatever, but that doesn't always work. And, you know, you don't always frankly have the energy or the mm-hmm. wherewithal to, to go through those steps. So, you know, I'm so sorry to those people who do have to continually come out and who deal with that erasure. Yeah. It sucks. It's unfair. Yeah. Boo hiss. Boo hiss all day long. <laughs> I will read the next one if that's okay with you, Amy. Would love it. Okay. This one is from Ian. Ian says, intimacy is vulnerability. First, I don't know. Cancer hit the family like a pallet of timber, flaking bark and mossy unnecessariness upon everything and anything. But then I tried, if only in my head, to get all spiritual about it. Reasons, resilience, radical acceptance, the crap of capitalism and prayer. Also, I think the crap of survival, because what keeps us alive beyond the luck of chemistry are the stories we tell ourselves. When Jen got sick, a good friend from grad school, then an assistant professor of English at Rice University, died of stomach cancer, age fucking 40. His third book of poems was published posthumously. I raged. I was afraid. I didn't know what to do about anything. Jen is a light, a giant beam of goodness tall and radiant in spirit and heart and body. So when someone like that gets sick, you wonder why anything, which is the same as asking why everything or why something and not nothing or the basic problem of metaphysics or the basic problem of being alive, of beings being cognizant of non-being. But anyway, shaving her head was holy. I mean that. It was the moment for me when I knew the territory of our lives had changed and from there on in we'd be different and that the difference would be okay. It was the moment when I saw her tall beam of goodness beam and I felt braver and kinder and more of the fuck it I've only grown more in loud applause of. Very loud applause. And so when it came time to shave off Jay's hair, we brought our daughters into the bathroom to help lay newspaper on the floor and over the sink. The girls were excited, giggling when I turned on the clippers. Jay closed her eyes, bent her head forward. I didn't want to watch her face in the mirror. I didn't want the feeling of this moment to mean more than maybe it did. It was hair, that was all. But of course, that wasn't all. For me, it was the moment when I felt the territory of our lives changing, and how after the change we'd be different, and either that difference would be okay or not okay. Intimate, vulnerable, the four of us crammed into the bathroom a few days before Jay's second chemo treatment was set to begin. Hair coming off in chunks in my hands, down onto the newspaper. The girls going silent as more of it came off. Jay peeking at herself now, and the feel of my hands against her skin as if for the first time. Look, whatever your experience, it's yours. To carry or discard, praise or curse, there are no answers. There is life and witness and death. I think, too, there's a spirit thrumming beneath all of it that connects all of it. And that has helped me, too. And if the thought of that doesn't help you, that's okay. And if the thought of that, the beam and the light and the goodness and the spirit helps you, that's okay too. But really, the only real thing I can say is that if you get the chance to shave her head, you should take it. Thank you, Anne. 
Thank you so much, Ian. And thank you particularly, Ian, for not inserting yourself too much into that. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is I see a lot of cancer caregivers, and this is not like an indictment, you guys, so don't get defensive, but I see a lot of cancer caregivers guessing at their Mm. partner's feelings um, or kind of trying to extrapolate like what something means to the Mm. cancer person. And I think Ian did a really lovely job of just giving us his perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's so important because it all really comes down to in the caregiver cancer person relationship so much good communication Mm -hmm. and clearly saying how you feel what's going on for you what you need right and but there is something to be said for leaving some stuff unsaid too that isn't helpful that is sometimes oh yeah for sure you know just knowing the balance of that is is an art (laughs) absolutely unfortunately it's an art um I'm going to move along to the next letter. Hello, Dr. Leia from the Cancer Pod invited me to reach out with caregiver topics. Thank you, Dr. Leia. Um, I would have appreciated a group or even another person to talk to about fears and frustrations. The hospital discussions were about treatment, survival, and side effects. As a partner, I was confronting uncertainty and loss, and I just wanted to know what was normal, what to expect, or if it was reasonable to have hope of a normal married life again. Was it okay to even be frustrated, fearful, etc.? Even a book like What to Expect would have been nice, like the standard issue pregnancy book, What to Expect when You're Expecting. Um, thank you. Um, yeah, I know. Like, is there a book? There should be some sort of, like... <laughs> podcast dedicated to caregivers <laughs> like an episode of a cancer podcast is, oh god i hate myself um it's true though yeah. i don't think there is a book i mean maybe there is god knows the cancer book field is wide but um i wanted to say i hope he won't mind me saying mm-hmm. this but when i was first diagnosed i looked up caregiver support groups mm-hmm. on facebook And I didn't want to join any, obviously, because it wasn't my lane, but I recommended one to my partner and he joined it and it was so fucking traumatic because, oh my God, it was dominated by people whose partners were at the end of their lives. Yes, And I think that's so common that people, caregivers don't seek out help and support until you're down to the wire and you're flailing Mm -hmm. and desperate. That is so interesting because the other time they reach out for support is in the beginning. So those two groups of people are meeting in the same group and the worst possible people to be talking to each other. Right, right. And there needs to be a community that's established before you're desperate and Mm -hmm. flailing. You know, you need something that's going to be reliable and there for you in the years preceding (laughs) the end times if that's something that you're looking at yeah and so Nathan was totally traumatized by it and it wasn't relevant to him he didn't need to be seeing those posts no and he wasn't offering any support or help to those people either and so that's really what I hope we can do with our group and I hope that there are more caregiver groups that kind of come back after COVID in person because god 
it's not okay to just wait until the very end to totally. seek camaraderie. Yeah. And I, I like to remind people, um, I remind cancer people about when they're starting new medications or drugs and they look, there are these groups, right? That yeah. mm-hmm. you see nothing but complaints and side effects and then you get scared as hell. But I, it's the same thing with, with what you're talking about, where people only write about that kind of stuff in groups. Like, I'm not going, man, I, my anastrozole is not something I think <laughs> about. I'm going to go write in right. this group about how I played tennis yesterday and didn't think about anastrozole, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, and another thing I did want to say about, oh, crap, I had something good that I really wanted to include. This is called chemo brain. Be gentle with your partner about chemo brain it's so real oh yes how he was saying you know the appointments are about treatment and not about this other stuff like yeah our care team our medical care team already does a poor job at the mental aspect of cancer dealing with it addressing it telling us how to deal with it Mm -hmm. with the cancer people yeah like we barely can get any direction they just want to save our lives they don't really you know, they're like, you on your own time, figure out yeah. your <laughs> shit. It was just understandable, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's not, but it is. And so, yeah, to expect even support for the caregiver, which you deserve so much to have. Yeah. It's just so hard to find. And I am lucky enough that I go to a really amazing cancer clinic where social workers check in with the entire family, their family resources. My partner actually got a therapist before I did because Mm -hmm. they hooked him up with one. And um, not everybody is that lucky. And so, you know, if you don't live close enough to an NCI designated hospital, then you're not getting those resources. And a lot of times caregivers don't have the extra time or the extra energy Mm -hmm. to like hoof it around to therapy offices and see who's taking new patients and if your insurance covers it and blah 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 so hard that's why i think that it's really on us as cancer people in the cancer community to support each other because Mm -hmm. fuck knows the u.s healthcare system does not have our back yeah damn it uh would you oh jiminy criminy do you know what the next two letters are (laughs) oh boy i have an idea Oh my God! It's our partner's letters. Shall we do this? We had we had very different approaches to getting letters from our partners. Should we tell people? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I my approach was to not ask Kevin to write in and not even tell him I was doing this episode, um, because my style is to not put anybody out mm-hmm. and. <laughs> And I, I mean, I will, I'll put anybody out, but not for like, I won't try and re-traumatize my freaking husband for my podcast. And I, that's how I, what I felt like would be like, (laughs) Hey Kevin, do you want to like talk about how terrible that was for you? That whole year of treatment since that, you know, which is not what I would be doing, but I just didn't want to come across that way. And then he found out we were doing this episode, like literally the day before we were set to record. And he was like, why didn't you tell me? I would have loved to have write something. And I was like, you would? I, did, I didn't want to bother you. And he's just like, oh, 
Like, I wish I had more time. And I was like, we don't have to record tomorrow, but I didn't want to bother you, you know. And then he did write something. Um, Meanwhile, I have no problem mining my entire family for content. <laughs> so um, I was like, Nathan, you're writing something for the podcast. We're doing a caregiver's episode. It's due tomorrow. Thanks. <laughs> Nathan! Sorry, I'm a nightmare. No, you're wonderful. Um, I would do anything you told me to do, too. So. <laughs> great. It's a gift. Great. Um. Do you want to read Kevin's first? I will. I'll go for it. I'm going to read Kevin's. Kevin is my, my dude. She's just for newcomers. Yeah. We're, we're doing each other's partners. Ooh, that is not cool. Kevin is a lovely man, but I am not interested in him. Hey, he is lovely. (laughs) You would be so lucky. (laughs) It's true. Kevin's great. He has great hair. Mm -hmm. All right. He says, so this is a letter to me in the past, or maybe this is a letter to me in the future with the foreboding that I'll go through this again someday and forget what happened. That part is always the inescapable fear that you're going to go into the trenches again and all you'll be good for is bringing food and water to the wounded. Sometimes feeling useless in the face of danger can be worse than not being there at all, I think. I've thought about this a lot. I've thought about this daily for two years, which is a long time to think about an illness you haven't had. And I still don't really know what to think. What I can say with some certainty is that the most threatening thing about cancer striking a loved one is the way in which you can't fight it. Everyone who loves someone deeply has a moment in which you imagine and resolve yourself to the idea that you'd fight for them or kill for them and even sacrifice yourself to save them. See, Kevin's a dream boat. You can't do that in this fight. You can't even make the attempt. The futility of caring is itself like a transitory state. You're trapped in an instance of time watching something unfold entirely as a spectator. It is useless to talk about the worst parts of watching someone you love go through this because the number of ways in which you can't help them are infinite. You can't really alleviate the pain and worry or protect them from what is trying to kill them. You're battling something that is trying to destroy someone you love. And the best that you can do is fluff pillows, ask what can I do, what do you need, what would make you feel better, and bring what seems like an inexhaustible assembly line of pills, drinks, elixirs, and good wishes, home remedies, tonics, and thoughts and prayers, cards from extended family, Facebook posts, memories of when things were better, old pictures, anything to distract from the futility of what is currently happening, an uncontrollable and suffocating inability to do anything. Anything except wait and see what happens. This is a terror that grows in magnitude because it is a terror that you can't see or sense in any way. It is a monster that exists in the ether where it can't be confronted. It exists in biopsies and scans and charts. It exists in the corners of waiting rooms. It exists while you're finding parking at the hospital. It exists in the things you might overhear a nurse say or a comment from a radiology technician during an MRI. And it exists in the interpretations you give the things you overhear and the endless analysis of what you think things might have meant. Did the nurse mean for me to hear that? Was it a passing comment? Should I worry? It exists in stories from friends who fought a similar monster. Maybe they were the same age or had the same symptoms or genetics. Or maybe that information comes from an early morning drunken Google search, driven by panic and insomnia and desperation to find any kind of good news somewhere on some website. Maybe some kind of testimonial of an experimental treatment, 
maybe just a story of someone who emerged from the other side more or less intact. Those are the only things you can use to fight this monster when you're watching someone you love actually wrestle it. You are fighting by proxy through secondhand information, maybe an overheard conversation with another patient, maybe hanging a mountain of significance on a single thing a doctor says in passing. This treatment seems to show promise, or patients like you have been responding well. Those are the only weapons you can use in this fight, and they're useless, but you cling to them. Ultimately, as someone who is supporting a loved one who is ill, you have to resign yourself to the fact that you aren't in this fight, and engaging that way is senseless. You will grind yourself into dust. And there might not be any real antidote to the fear and worry. I wish I had better advice. I wish I had a time machine that could transport me back to a few years ago and say, this is what you should do and this is how you should feel. Platitudes like be kind to yourself are hollow and useless when someone you love is in danger. What you can do is realize that your strength, even if it is a facade, may be some kind of ephemeral medicine to your loved one. And allowing that facade to crumble late at night after everyone is asleep can also be medicine for you. And sometimes that medicine is lying on the floor and letting fear completely consume you for a few hours and allowing the entirety of everything to drain all the tears and trembling out of your body until you fall asleep. Let yourself crumble. Take cues from your partner. Allow vulnerability if it helps them. If not, show them you care and collapse on your own time. There probably isn't any formula. I wish I had a better ending to this. Use all or any or none of it. It's like standing on a beach and trying to stop waves from coming in. I can't think of anything worse than seeing someone you love suffering and having to stand off to the side, fetching water and pills, and just hoping things work out. I wouldn't wish it on anyone. Oh, Kevin. Kevin. He's the best. I do want to know what he overheard the nurse say um kevin <laughs> what was her tone of voice what? like kevin? I mean, am i, am I gonna be okay? <laughs> uh no that letter was beautiful and he did a wonderful job of being my caretaker and still does and i especially liked in the letter where he said you have to be strong and put up put up this front of being strong but then yeah. i was like no you don't and but then he followed it up saying or be vulnerable if that's what your person needs, which yeah, is really important because you can't just be, everything's okay. Everything's fine. We're going to be okay. You know, you cannot be that to the cancer person because you have to meet them in the shit storm or else right. you're not going to be of any use. But you also cannot be just a wallowing freak the whole time because also the cancer people cannot deal with your shit so finding that balance is so hard but please those listening try to be both right right because when your caregiver is just like it's okay it's totally fine no I'm fine Mm -hmm. it can make you feel really invisible as a cancer person like yeah don't they care why isn't this bothering them or that they expect you to act that way. Right. So you feel like you have to pretend that things are fine, where it's just like, nah, dog. Right. I think that that's just the key, is be real with each other mm-hmm. and be upfront about what you need. And if, if you're in a place where you just need somebody to <laughs> to take the reins for a minute, you can say that mm-hmm. and be like, you know what, I'm just, I can't deal right now. Mm-hmm. A lot of this, you know, I feel like it's funny because that's a common theme is people saying, 
maybe you'll use some of this or none of this. It's, it feels like there's so much that's universal in these letters. That's like, fuck if I know, you know, like that's, that's what we're all going through. It's all just this like Mm -hmm. treading water experience. And there is no right thing to say, which is so frustrating. You know, all these letters combined, I think, are so good because there's so many different experiences and viewpoints. And just knowing that you're not alone, like as a caregiver, knowing that other people have all of these fears and feelings and like what the fuckedness going on to is comfort, even though you obviously don't want anybody else to be going through it. But yeah, um, but knowing you're not alone is all we have essentially that's why we do this stupid podcast exactly um i did want to say one more thing about how wonderful kevin is because (laughs) (laughs) um one thing that i loved about having him around and that cancer isn't just non-stop freaking out and crying and laying there being sick like Your normal life is also happening at the same time. And it's really weird because, you know, the days are long and there are still laughs to be had, believe it or not. And like, there's something about like having Kevin during that time and still just being able to be us through it all, even though I was like really bald and skinny and looked weird and, you know, like, (laughs) yeah. To still be able to be us through it all was so good because it's so hard to just be you around anybody else because this elephant in the room, you know, when the yeah. friend comes over to deliver the food, they're delivering food to their friend with cancer and they they don't want to step on your toes and they, you know, like whatever it is, even if it's a friend you see often or your sister or whoever, like, you know that there's this thing and you can kind of escape that with your partner because they're going through it too, you know? And then you can like, even though it is always on your mind, you can at least have some laughs sometimes. Well, I think that that really kind of encapsulates what you just said. um, Makes me think of the fact that everybody who's not part of the cancer community kind of acts like this, like cancer is this weird insertion into your life. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are just like, you know, catch it on the flip side. Like, you know, let me know when this is over. But the reality is that this is life. Like Mm -hmm. we go through it. It's still a part of our lives. We are still living, Mm -hmm. you know, there's day to day shit that is going on. Like you said, through cancer. And, um, it's not just this weird like cartridge that we stick in and then yeah. we get to the end of it and it's over. It is just living your life. A lot of us end up living the rest of our lives with this insertion happening mm-hmm. and you have to keep going. You have to love the people that are around you. Otherwise it's going to suck, you know, like mm-hmm. it is important to keep those relationships up and going. And that's why I really loved what Kayla said in her letter mm-hmm. about, you know, dance with your wife and the, yeah you know, in the lobby and have those special times wherever you can eat them out because you're still a person, you know, it's still a relationship. And whether it's your spouse, your mom, your sister, your best friend, you know, you got to make time to have fun Mm -hmm. and have some laughs and do other shit that's not related to cancer. Totally. Yeah. Yes. Um, 
Shall I read Nathan's? Oh, I suppose. Let's see. Is he going to drag me? (laughs) (laughs) If I had known she was going to get cancer, I would have bailed out. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. You know what? Also, we must mention. What? We, we say this sometimes, but did did you know that Nathan is our producer of this podcast and he does such a wonderful job? Yeah, he does. Thank you, Nathan. He's just the best. We make him do a lot of crap. It's true. Okay. Nathan says, being a producer and editor for this podcast has been both an extreme asset and at times stinging and difficult. I bet. Uh, My therapist likened my small role in this project to immersion therapy. Before Steph's diagnosis, I would consider myself the muggliest of muggles. Mm. Now I feel very fortunate to know so much and I'm learning more all the time. While it has come with a heaping dose of growing pains, I'm glad to have such a view of the intricacies and details of cancer. I would urge any caregiver to listen and listen to this podcast deeply. Oh, thank you, Nathan. <laughs> we we pay him to say that. Oh, we don't pay him anything, actually, which is <laughs> which is the dickiest of dickiest things. <laughs> now there's that word, caregiver. Much like I've seen and heard people with cancer doing the damaging dance of, yeah, but I'm not a real cancer person and endless comparisons, which they do. Um, I just realized a few days ago that I also have fallen prey to this. Thanks to medicine and her care team, Seth's condition is stable. Truly, I don't feel like I do much on the daily to act as a caregiver. I was even very hesitant to join the Cancer for Breakfast Caregivers Facebook group for fear of not being caregivery enough. Nathan, sounds like somebody has a case of imposter syndrome. <laughs> somebody called a weightlifter. Um, the best of our friends would remind all of us that we've navigate, we are navigating impossible waters. So caregivers, this is my advice for now. First, make sure you have a relationship with a therapist and lean heavily on it when you need to. That amazing chart of dump in, dump out is something I think of often, even when I fail to meet the challenge. Um, that He's referring to an amazing uh, concept we talked about on an earlier episode. Maybe we can debrief after this letter about that. Yeah. Um, sure. Second, as long as you're supporting your person with cancer and you are actively trying to become better for them, you're a caregiver. Be open to feeling. Be open to growing and be gentle with yourself. Love it, Nathan. Yes. yes. Thank you Thank so you. much. Um, so the thing that he mentioned, mm-hmm. which he said dump in, dump out, but it's actually comfort in and dump out. You're always correcting him. <laughs> You're always nagging like this. I'm such a Virgo. It's the worst. <laughs> I really am a nightmare, you guys. Um, <laughs> but so... I think it's called like the grief circle or something like that. That sounds right up my alley. I love a good grief circle. (laughs) Who doesn't? (sighs) Um, So it's if you imagine concentric circles with the aggrieved person in the middle, Mm -hmm. then the next circle out from them is their, you know, their partner, their immediate family. Mm -hmm. And then the next circle out from that is I believe true friends like mm-hmm. clo- you know your closest friends the next circle out from that would be 
um, like coworkers. Mm-hmm. Basically, if you imagine, you know, the circles of your life where you have acquaintances kind of, mm-hmm. you know, after that, and then looky-loos would be yeah. the farthest. So people you you don't really know, but who, you know, might take an yeah. interest in what's happening with you. Acquaintances, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. So the idea is that you only comfort in to to toward the center of the circle. Mm-hmm. So if you're a coworker, you would not discuss your fears and anxieties about the person with someone who's closer to mm-hmm. them than you are. You only comfort in. You dump your bad feelings out to the yes. next circle away from you. And that way you don't have, you know, somebody's coworker telling their spouse oh my god aren't you afraid she's gonna die i don't i'm so i'm just so scared for her because they don't need to hear that shit no if you're the caregiver you should not be dealing with other people's fear and grief except for your cancer person yes you two are a team you support each other you deal with your own feelings together and everyone else should be Mm -hmm. focusing their comfort on you and you as the caregiver you know um, apart from the things that you've agreed on with your cancer person you seek comfort out also you know right. with your therapist with your close friends mm-hmm. um and i think that it's a really kind of obviously common sense approach right. to it but unfortunately it doesn't happen very often mm-hmm. well people love you know, the whole like misery loves company thing and they, you know, love some drama and they love some gossip. And so I think sometimes people do get into that trap where the coworker is talking to the best friend being like, oh, well, no, go gossip with the other coworker. Yeah. They want to share unhelpful shit. Yeah. You know, everybody is probably doing their best, but best intentions you know, don't really matter a lot of the time. So um, intent uh, is less important than impact when you're dealing with somebody with cancer. So, so um, we'll link that little diagram in the show notes so you guys can Mm -hmm. see it and not rely on my shitty explanation, but that's what Nathan was talking about. And it's really helpful, I think, to remember. Um, Mm -hmm. And as a caregiver too, you can feel free to like share that with people and be like, you guys, I can't with your bad Bad news stories. I can't even. (laughs) God. Get a grip, people. Um, Love it. Nathan, you are the best. And we will start paying you immediately. In sweat. In sweat. (laughs) Your own sweat, not ours. (laughs) That's right. Sweat out. Comfort in. (laughs) Um, (laughs) What do we have left for letters here? Um, We've got Betsy. Great. Oh, you know what? Actually, before we read Betsy's, I did want to mention, I don't actually have it anymore because I took a screenshot and I don't have my phone on me. Gosh darn it. But I did want to uh, voice something for a mother of a child with cancer that um, with her permission, she had posted something on Instagram and her Instagram handle is cheering for Charlie and her daughter Charlie is the sweetest little bunny ever. She is just such a perfect little muffin and we are obviously always cheering for Charlie. Hell yes. Um, But she had posted some frustration within the caregiver community of the childhood cancer caregiver 
community. And if anyone is listening, I just wanted to voice this for her. And she was very frustrated with people um, posting about scan results um, and thanking God for the health of their child and thanking, you know, like God answering their prayers and stuff when they get good news about their child's cancer. Because she said for people in that community who are getting bad news, it's not that God isn't hearing their prayers. and But the implication is there that like somehow... Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like God saw fit to save their kid, but not her kid. Like, yes, and that is just so messed up because people dealing with childhood cancer, I do really think that they find comfort from other people in those situations because nobody else could possibly understand what they're going through. The entire rest of the world is like, at least it's not my kids. You know, like, oh God, yes. What did what did you do to what? What did you feed her when she was, you know, like, yeah, these fucking people say the worst shit. But in that community, they're finding support with each other. And then when your kid is not doing well and then you hear from everybody and she says, I want everyone to be doing well. I want everyone to get the good scans. I know the good scan feeling and I want everyone else to have that. Yeah. But please stop saying, thank God. Thank God. You know, like it's the fucking luck of the draw, people. And yeah, I think like. It happens. The thank God thing happens in every cancer community. It does. Adults too. But obviously, like, we can deal with it. We can bitch to each other about how dumb it is. Yeah. But I, (laughs) like, protect parents of childhood cancers and, like, childhood Mm -hmm. cancer patients at all costs. I feel like we just need to form this, like, circle of protection around them and be like, fuck you guys for making them feel bad. Absolutely. Because there's just, I mean, truly, there's there's nothing worse. And, like, they're going through the worst thing and um, they don't need your dumb statements. But I am so glad when people get good scans. Right, of course. And also, just... You know, while we have you on the line, let's mention that childhood cancer gets like 4% of government funding for childhood cancer research. And what the everlasting hell is that about? It's so weird. And it's appalling. Maybe people want to go back and listen to our episode that deals with St. Jude's and how they're sitting on a hoard of billions of dollars um, that could be going to actual research um, in eradicating some of these childhood cancers because they're just... Like they're unimaginable. It's unimaginable pain and suffering, and um, we'll link to that too. Because uh, Saint Jude's, the most unassuming people end up being awful. Yeah, right. And we're always talking about it on this podcast. <laughs> um, we're we're cancer activists. Um, <laughs> There's no good cause we won't take down. Yeah, Susan Coleman. Okay. What is this next letter? Betsy's? Would you read Betsy's? I will. Would you do the honors? I will read read Betsy's. And I just wanted to remind folks that if listening to a letter that deals with the death of a cancer person is going to trigger you too much, go ahead and fast forward. And I will say, I think she handles it with so much care. And for folks that do listen to this podcast, you know, we would not be reading this letter if we thought it was going to freak everybody out or fear spiral you right right so if you do trust us definitely i think it's worth it it's a beautiful letter for sure dear amy and steph i'm a listener of the podcast because i'm a breast cancer patient but i honestly relate more to the caregiver role 
I'm 46 now, but back when I was 25, my husband Andy was diagnosed with Ewing's sarcoma, a really aggressive form of bone cancer. We were actually only engaged at the time, and he was dealing with horrible and mysterious back pain while we were planning our wedding. MRIs never showed a cause for the pain until one day when he couldn't walk, we sent him to the ER, and the cancer was finally large enough to see on imaging. Looking back before his diagnosis, I was a pretty selfish 20-something girl, and I honestly don't recall feeling like I had a lot of depth or strength, um, like most 20-somethings. Yeah, she was. Mm -hmm. All of that changed with his diagnosis. Of course, the strength didn't come immediately. I remember getting the news he had cancer, crying with him in the hospital, and then in shock, I drove home and proceeded to vomit for the next 24 hours. Mm. I was sick with grief, and I know a lot of cancer patients hate to hear this, but from that moment on, everything that happened to him felt as if it was happening to me too. The pain of him being in pain, the fear for his life, for our future together, the devastation was palpable. I did what a lot of patients I hear these days cringe at. I called it our cancer, because I truly felt like I was in it with him. I remember the nurses teaching me how to give Nupogen shots and thinking, there's no fucking way I'm going to be able to do this. But I did. I morphed into this person who could manage medicines, communicate with doctors, handle vomit without batting an eye, and do countless of other things I never previously imagined. We ended up getting married in the middle of his chemotherapy and spent our honeymoon in the hospital for a five-day-long chemo treatment. He ended up getting six months of remission where we had a bit of normal life. We traveled to Hawaii and had a beautiful belated honeymoon where nobody knew we had cancer, and we got to pretend to be normal newlyweds, if only for a week. We returned home from that trip to him having a recurrence soon after. He went on to do a stem cell transplant a few states away, and the damn cancer returned just three months after that. His doctors threw everything at him. Had him even do a hip replacement, and the cancer just kept coming back. By that time, Andy was done with treatment, and he wanted to go home. As a caregiver, hospice was my biggest nightmare, because we had been surrounded by amazing doctors and professionals, people fighting for my husband, our life, our dreams. I hated leaving all those familiar people who knew all about his care. Andy had been slowly letting go of all of that and was finding himself readying himself to die. He told me, Betsy, you have the hard part. I get to go and leave the pain behind. You have to stay with it. That whole time in hospice was just me battling being okay with letting him go, and Andy was waiting on me to be ready. Andy died on July 4th, 2003, a fitting Independence Day for him of all the pain he was in. Loving and losing Andy to cancer was something I would do over and over again, and I'm so thankful for my time with him. I did learn some things I'll give you some hot tips on. Regarding scanxiety, like most everyone, we were constantly freaking out that the cancer was returning. We would worry he would have a scan, we would freak, and then when we got the word that the scans were clear, we would breathe a sigh of relief, but also realize how we just wasted time when he was healthy, freaking out. So we created the motto, don't freak out until you have to freak out. Mm. Yeah, I'm using that. I love it. That way, we wouldn't waste healthy days worrying. I mean, of course, it's practically impossible to actually do that, but it helped. Mm -hmm. Yes, get a pet in the middle of cancer. It will be nuts and hard, but they are so healing. We got two pugs Mm -hmm. when he was depressed and hating radiation, and they brought us both so much joy. 
you will go through things that will legit traumatize you. Get therapy and better yet, seek out a therapist who can do EMDR. Find other caregivers to bond with. I loved talking to other cancer wives. Nobody else gets it like they do. Get massages. My stress really manifested itself physically, and I always felt like a diva getting massages, but I shouldn't have felt that way. It was true self-care. Yes. Mm -hmm. Not all of your friends will be amazing and know how to handle your person's cancer. This is especially true if you are under 30. They really don't have the maturity to handle it. Just have Mm -hmm. grace with people or distance yourself from them and don't feel guilty about doing that. Skip other people's big days if you need to. I was a 20-something people pleaser in the Midwest back then, and I went to baby showers and weddings that broke my heart when I could have easily skipped them for my mental health. Yes. Mm -hmm. I wish I had allowed myself to spend money on hotel rooms instead of staying at friends' homes during stays at faraway hospitals. Oftentimes, their family drama was not good for me. So just allow yourself to spend money on what you need. Let friends that you trust come and help experience being a caregiver too. It will mean so much to them. And lastly, when in doubt, love is the answer. That is something Andy told me before he passed away. When I asked him, what should I do when you're gone? He simply said, you'll love. Love is always the answer. What I wish I had known. That family and friends are grieving too. They don't always know how to say the right things. Handle everyone with a big dose of salt and forgiveness. I wish I had traveled more with Andy during remission. I was afraid to spend money and that feels really stupid now. I should have been on anti-anxiety meds. I sure could have used them. I wish we would have talked about what palliative care is and considered palliative care before hospice. Mm -hmm. So here I am, 18 years later, and I'm dealing with breast cancer. I've had to unlearn a lot of things because breast cancer is completely different than Ewing's sarcoma. I'm also trying to learn that having cancer doesn't automatically always mean the cancer will come back right away or at all. Basically, I'm working on learning how to chill and imagine things can work out okay. Oh, and I had to update that yes, I did get married again to a wonderful man who has been supportive of my grief process. And I have two precious kids who know all about my experience with my late husband. So that's how I can be a cancer patient with the insight of a caregiver. I know there's a hot widows club out there, but is there a past widows now cancer patient club? (laughs) If there are any of you out there, come sit next to me. I have a feeling we have a lot to talk about. Thank you, Betsy. Betsy, you're the greatest. and She is the greatest. I am so, so thankful that she took the time to share all of that with us because it really is a unique perspective. So unique. And also, she's so sweet. She wrote us afterwards and was like, should I not have mentioned about that he, that he died? Like, is that bad to... I don't remember what she said. It, it was something like that. Like, is that going to be too triggering for people? And I was like... <laughs> Betsy, if we didn't include that perspective, then we're just doing that toxic positivity because this is the point of like why this shit is so terrifying is this, that cancer is fucking awful. And, and that is true. And this is some of the people listening that is going to be the realities sooner or later, who knows? Yeah. And for many of the people listening, that is not going to be the reality from cancer at least, but. But it's such an important 
perspective to include. And I'm so thankful that she did that. Yeah. And one thing I love and that I have heard not only from Betsy, but from a lot of caregivers is that they would do it over and over again. You know, the time that they spent taking care of somebody they love isn't a regret that they have. They do have a choice and they kept choosing it. And that's really special. I can't wait for our episode about caregivers, the dark side. When you mm-hmm. don't love your partner. Mm-hmm. Or just that, you know, people have genuine conflict and that doesn't get talked about a lot. Yeah. You still fight with your bald ass partner. Yeah. And sometimes you, you know, you didn't seize on opportunities to get out of a relationship that you aren't stoked about anymore. And mm-hmm. then dealing yep. with the cancer in the wake yeah. of those feelings can be really, really complicated. Yeah. One time I broke up with a dude I was living with and then he got in a terrible bike accident the next day and got a head injury. And I had to like take care of him for like three weeks in our house (laughs) after we broke up. And it was (laughs) awful. Hi, Jason. (laughs) He's lovely. We're still friends. It's cool. But those three weeks were not cool. Oh, man. At least he didn't forget that you broke up with him and have like amnesia. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, honey. I'm home. <laughs> oh my god, that's so funny. Um, I should have just pretended that it was if I like wanted to be in the relationship, that would have been a cool trick too to be like, "No, honey, we didn't break up. <laughs> We're we've been really happy. What are you talking about?" Yes, there you go. That's a that's a horror movie waiting to happen. Oh my god. Or a rom-com. Either one. <laughs> Um, okay, so those are our letters. Thank everybody for writing. I want just the best for everyone listening and for their partners. And um, so much good shit in there. Yeah, thanks, guys. I know it's really vulnerable. For some reason, it's it's harder to get caregivers to talk about their shit than it, it is, is to get cancer people to talk about their shit. So, yeah, and I'm not trying to like, say our Facebook caregiver group is like all that because you guys don't talk in there like that's actually true like there are members in that group they're quiet little mice and so more people listening please join that group and start the discussions and get it going the goal is actually for Steph or I don't even think you're in it I'm not but yeah I so that Nathan can have some privacy I'm in it just as an admin but I my goal is to get the f out of there too to give you all privacy so if anyone listening wants to admin that account and help with some of the discussions or um anyone wants to go in there and just post whatever's going on please freaking do because these people in there are very quiet yeah do it yeah it's not like our cancer club that we have our crying in our nightgown Facebook group. People posting there all the time. It's a real... We're all best friends. It's great. It's fun. It's fun as fuck. Speaking of mice, um, do you want me to do mm-hmm. a rats? <gasps> yeah. just something very quick to talk about that I found that's interesting to me. Um, As we said, 
oncologists are focused on curing the cancer. They don't really have time or, frankly, the education to deal with the mental health parts of oncology. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, in some cases, the slack is picked up by social workers. But there's a really cool program at the University of Texas at San Antonio. Mm-hmm. And it's part of the nursing program, and it's called Caring for the Caregiver. And um, you can find info about this program at utcaregivers.org. It's really, really neat. They are committed to supporting families impacted by dementia and other chronic illnesses through education, social engagement, service, and research. That's their mission statement. So they do focus a lot on dementia, but uh, they have a ton of really neat services that aren't dementia-focused. They have events um, online. They have virtual kind of classes um, for the essentials of caregiving. And a lot of this is going to focus more on um, sort of of end-of-life care where the person needs a lot of hands-on help. And so, you know, that's going to be not only managing medications and things like that, but taking care of somebody's hair and, you know, brushing their teeth and things like that. Um, But then there's also a part of this that is not so much focused on end of life. And they have a monthly support group for family caregivers um, that's, I believe, in person now in San Antonio. But they've got some online stuff, too. You can register for online events right now. They've got one on February 10th that is called The Essentials of Caregiving. And anyone can join it or only San Antonio people? Anybody can join it. They offer these services free of charge um, to anybody. And I think it, it it's something that I wish was available at more nursing colleges because mm-hmm. we've talked about this in the past, not just for cancer, but people are surviving longer with diseases, which is awesome. But for a really long time, the medicine was only focused on curing the disease. And there wasn't really a lot of time given to the fallout from those diseases. And I think that things, programs Mm -hmm. like caring for the caregiver are sort of a side effect of people living longer with chronic illnesses, um, people having better quality of life and that being a focus. So um, they've got an education and resources section. On their website, um, they have community resources available there in San Antonio, and then they've also got um, a page for research that is being conducted there at the facility. People can be involved in their studies. They've got clinical trials happening there. Um, they, they're just doing a lot of cool stuff. And so, um, you know, I don't know if, if there are nurses that are in our audience that are listening that would be interested in this. Um, people who are considering, Mm -hmm. you know, going into the field of caregiving. This is something that you could bring to, you know, your local uh, nursing school. That might be neat. Um, They have a lot available on this website of stuff that you can use. Um, They are on YouTube. They've got a YouTube channel that uh, has some of their prior classes on there. It's just, it's a really cool 
resource, I think. Mm -hmm. So um, once again, I'll link it in the show notes, but it is utcaregivers.org. Love it. Cool, Steph. Yeah. Cool listeners. Uh, We have a buy me a coffee. We'll link it below. We have a Patreon. Thank you so much to everyone who has become members and thank you to everyone who's rated us. Yeah. Rate, review, subscribe. If you don't have money to spend or if you just don't want to spend money on us, that's fine. But a free way to support the podcast is to rate and review and subscribe so um, we can keep making more podcasts. Yes. And please share this. Share this episode with other caregivers. Share this episode with uh, friends so they can kind of understand a little bit of the behind the scenes of what you're going through. That's right. All right. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. Cancer for Breakfast is hosted by Amy Diles and Stephanie Lajeunesse and produced by Nathan McGeehee. Our theme music is written and performed by Vivivir. Find us at cancerforbreakfast.com, Instagram at cancerforbreakfast, and email at cancerforbreakfast at gmail.com. so much for listening thanks for listening i mean <laughs> rollo